0: So welcome in. We're joined here today by Matt Brown. Um, He's got the Extra Points newsletter podcast, I believe, and um, I kind of hate to do it, but I'm gonna I'm gonna plug it. I mean, you gotta. I I go to it. I've definitely referenced it before. I read it constantly. Um, You're really kind of doing God's work out there because it's really it's it's just such a cool subject, and there's not a lot of people doing it, especially at this level. So it's it's really an honor for me to have you on. Uh, here today so thanks for doing that
1: oh okay Thank, thanks for having me and i i appreciate the kind words like that's the uh the old business adage right is that niche makes you rich right so yeah. um i i recognize that i'm writing college uh sports content that maybe isn't going to get the same number of clicks as alabama's depth chart but exactly. for the people that want to read about finance and uconn football scheduling i'm the huckleberry baby <laughs> and I'm, I'm glad i'm glad that i found those people out there that'll let me this. oh the yeah
0: yeah well, absolutely, and it it drives a lot more than you think. You know, it's uh, there's a lot of stuff going behind the scenes that sure. you know ultimately leads to say Alabama's depth chart or something like that.
1: Oh yeah, un- unquestionably. I mean, I um, it's easy I think to forget the college component to college athletics, and it's not a criticism of other reporters because if you need to be at practice twice a week and you have to hit every presser, you don't have time to FOIA uh, financial reports or talk about the university's relationship with their deans. There's so much placed upon you. The fact that I can focus on all that other stuff, um, I, I I think makes sense. And you're absolutely right. I, I what happens off the field, both with your your athletic department's ability to get money, um, how that fits in with their educational mission, how they how that fits in with demographics, administrative policies. That's what helps shape what happens on the field.
0: Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, and and something I've heard you talk a lot about is like institutional profile and what is your college look like and that can be kind of the foundation for how you can how you can compete uh you know over a decade or whatever you know
1: yeah unquestionably like there's uh i mean there's we kind of forget about this even just like within division one that there's so many very different kinds of schools um we have regional state flagship institutions like my alma mater ohio state you have a population that's the size of a small city. You have an endowment that's $11,000,000,000,000. And, and you have different problems than a small liberal arts college or a religious-oriented institution or a tuition-dependent private school. And they all compete within Division One. They're, they're starting sports for different reasons. They're getting money from different places. They have to worry about who's actually going to show up and pay tuition in different pools. And um, this play, plays a huge impact on uh, what sports each institution sponsors, what they decide to invest in, um, and, and how they get and spend their money without question.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess maybe one of the things to kind of k- kick it off is um, a framework in which a lot of these discussions are being had, which is what does the future of college football look like? Because kind of in that context that you're talking about with all the way down to, you know, Division Three rowing, all the way up to you know Alabama and Ohio State football—they look, they they almost don't look like the same animal. And um, we're starting to see—I guess a lot of people asking questions. I don't know if it's what the drivers are, and I want to hear your thoughts on this. If it's NIL, if it's the money and the TV deals, if it's the playoff, if it's all of it, if it's whatever—it's starting to get people to ask. Okay, realistically, is you know top tier Division One college football something different? that maybe needs to be treated differently than, uh, you know, all the other sports and, or, you know, other, other levels of that sport. Um, yeah. maybe you could talk a little bit about maybe what's driving that conversation because now it seems like everybody's having it when before it was not really talked about.
1: Sure. You're, you're absolutely right. Like it, it would be, to say nothing of like Ohio State and Ohio Dominican, like a Division One, Division Two school, like that's clearly not the same animal. But I think anybody that's within this industry recognizes that Ohio State and Ohio aren't really playing yeah. by the same, the same rules. And if we're being really honest, Ohio State and Oregon State aren't really doing that, right? Like even, even their stratification, even within the Power Five. So right now there are two different, I, I would say, you know, there's major forces that are kind of pushing down on, what the future of college of big time college football is going to look like. And one of those is coming from the courts and from forces outside of the NCAA. Um, listeners may be familiar with the, the Supreme Court Alston decision that went, you know, nine-nothing, which um really limited the NCAA's ability to cap what a school might spend on educational awards for athletes. But if you look at the actual opinion, it makes it pretty clear that there's a lot of skepticism about the nature of amateurism within even the more conservative court members, which matches what we've seen out of the ninth district and maybe some more uh, progressive-minded jurists throughout the the system. This idea here that a a student could work, I mean, work more than 25 hours a week, um, subject their body to potential harm, for an enterprise that brings in hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue and then not be financially compensated for it because we've never just that's just because we've, we've always done it. That doesn't carry the same legal weight that it used to. And so and I've talked to several athletic directors about this big schools and small schools uh, recognizing we have to at least plan for a world where college athletes are legally employees. And where schools then have to pay them salaries and uh, pay them workers' compensation, which is how we ended up with the term student-athlete anyway, so the NCAA could avoid doing that or the in- member schools could avoid doing that. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that has to be considered here. Um, the 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 very nature of amateurism itself, and you know, I use that in quotes, it will face pressure from courts and from Congress and the National Labor Relations Board, external forces. You also have a, a reevaluation of what's happening from internal forces. The uh, a new NCAA constitution passed uh, a couple of weeks ago in Indianapolis, which m- moves a lot of authority outside of Indianapolis to member institutions at the division level. There's going to be a new could division. Yeah, please go can yeah. touch on that real quick. So the, please, let's
0: the, the NCAA, I guess you people kind of view it, maybe fans as like the separate thing, but but it's essentially the institutions themselves make up the NCAA, right? Or could oh, you talk see, a little yeah. bit about that? Like what exactly the NCAA is, maybe yes. how many people are there, what you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, this is it's a very common misconception, right? I think there's an idea from some fans that Mark Emmert is sitting in Indianapolis as with this, this army of people that like single-handedly makes decisions in college sports. Mark Emmert does have some authority, and there are full-time employees of the NCAA, lots of them, because there's uh, shoot, almost a thousand member schools. But NCAA policy, whether that's how they uh, investigate infractions, to how they run tournaments, to what sports they sponsor, all of that power flows from the member institutions. So I tell everybody, if there's something that the NCAA does that you hate, um, it isn't because of Mark Emmert specifically, although he may have had a hand in it. It's because the president and the athletic director of your alma mater want it that way. Um, they, They are the institutions that define what amateurism looks like. They're the ones that set up this infractions process that everybody hates. They're the ones that created a constitution and a legislative structure that is extremely complicated, more so than more complicated, arguably, than the system it takes to pass actual honest-to-God laws. So this change here said like, all right, we're going to have new articles of Confederation, basically. We're going to remove a lot of that power that we've given to Indianapolis and told Division One, hey, you guys set up your own rules. And if Division One says... We want to create a new division, like you know, a division four, essentially. That's either like super big boy football, or you know, uh, some subdivision of basketball or baseball or something else. You can do that. Um, and what's what's happened even within Division One, which is three hundred and thirty something institutions, it, the schools are so different that it's very difficult to pass. Uh, legislation and, and and to think of, of byline of bylaws or procedures that would impact everybody. You have schools with two hundred million dollars in their budgets, and you have schools with eight million dollars in their budgets. You have schools are with are million, twenty six. Yeah,
0: are all the yeah. schools represented equally, or how, how does that work? Not well. It used to be. Does University of Michigan have more say than you know Middle Tennessee State or something, or how does that?
1: Well, in in, in, in some in some ways, it is one school, one vote. So like when the Constitution itself was passed, University of Michigan and Hope College had the same number of votes. And for a long time, this bugged the hell out of the big schools. There's a lot more little schools than there are big schools. And that's what led to the idea of, an, of, of, of autonomy conferences, what we call the Power Five. Those are conferences that uh, within college football have disproportionate legislative power. And they demanded that because they wanted to be able to have the flexibility to pass rules that would only impact them. So if you're Michigan and you want to spend more money on your athletes for something um, and you don't want to be constrained by all the broke boys that are that are in the group, that's why you push for autonomy legislation. And when you talk to a a big time AD now, they're going to say, uh, what we really want from this new constitution is more autonomy for power conferences. And whenever you hear somebody say that, um, what they what they're actually saying is we want more money. Because they already have a ton of autonomy, or we want more access to championship events. So that's one of the big fights that's happening here. The, the 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 schools that make all the money want to keep more of that money, and they want to dominate more access to postseason events. And the smaller schools are trying to figure out how do we maintain the championship events we already have, and um, you know maintain a system here where we can pass rules that work for us when we're not operating in the same playing field. And that could look. A lot of different ways right now. You know, there, there's no but no AD can tell you exactly what this new constitution is going to look like that can tell you what the battle lines are going to be. But it is, I think, safe to assume that by August, college football and college division one college sports generally is going to look different. Like I feel very confident the men's tournament is going to the is going to look very different um in a year and a half than it does right now.
0: Yeah. Wow. What do you think the expansion of like potential expansion of the college football playoff would do for kind of not all the way down the tiers, but, you know, maybe power five versus some of the, you know, um, conferences just on the edge. Does that change their sort of bargaining power and the power dynamic? Because maybe there's, there's slots in this, you know, month long, uh, tournament at the end of the year for, for everybody or for a bigger piece, or does it? What what, well, what kind of effect do you think that might have? Or
1: yeah, I mean the the, the unpopular and, and, and lousy radio answer is uh, a lot of it really depends, right? It does it depends not just on how the playoff expands and what kind of access these other conferences get, but also more importantly, how the money's distributed. Because right now, the overwhelming majority of that revenue, but not all of the revenue is given to the power conferences and the Sun Belt conference USA get a small chunk, right? And even if you expand the playoff to 12 and you guarantee a group of five team makes that. You know, gets the sacrificial lamb bid and gets one of those things, Conference USA is probably never going to get that bid, or they're going to get that bid maybe once a decade. So that depends on how much, the how, how the money is distributed. The other important thing to remember, and this also sometimes gets lost in the legislative weeds, the NCAA doesn't really control college football, at least at the FBS level. They don't run the college football playoff. They, in fact, this is a source of a lot of consternation because the NCAA has to pay for the enforcement When somebody breaks the rules, it's NCAA investigators that have to get involved. But the college football playoff runs the playoff, and they distribute the money. And that's not an official NCAA sport. So uh, honestly, if I was to think of the tournament changes that would impact how the NCAA is set up the most, I'd look towards the expansion of the men's and women's basketball tournaments as being more impactful than the college football playoff. Because for everybody, it's the money from the tournament that funds the Big South. And the Big Sky and the the Colonial Athletic Conference and how that money is distributed is very much up for negotiation right now.
0: Okay, and so um, one thing that I that I noticed is like some of the bigger, you know, it's I guess it's not just a question of money; it's a question of like desire to compete and maybe history, marketability. You know, you've got the the Big Ten and you know the SEC are very big schools, very deep pocketed but then you've got you know kind of like the hedge funds with, with classes and the ivy league that yep. you know they if if they ever just sort of decided to compete in college football they would maybe be able to rise up the ranks quickly um what what kind of drives that is that just a decision by administrators and kind of you know the the pulse of this college of to whether they're going to do it or is it um I guess what I'm asking is sort of the chicken before the egg. Is it like these schools are in the power five? So they have the TV money. So they want to spend the TV money. So they want to compete or is it, you know, a school on the outside might be able to just kind of rev up the gears and almost push their way into uh, a higher level of play. Or is there still enough limitation on kind of the spending and, and different things that might prevent them from, from jumping into top tier football or something like that?
1: Yeah. yeah I'll, I'll try to answer that. Like, as I wonder if there's been a generation of fans that have had their, their mind skewed a little bit by the college football video game, where you would think that college football in particular is a meritocracy. And that simply by winning a bunch of games, you can move up and then get better recruits and get better money. But college football was really much more like European old money. You're in the power five right now with a couple of exceptions. But typically, because of the friends you made in 1910, and the kind of (laughs) school that you are, because most of the schools in the Power Five are big flagship state institutions, R1 research schools. And most of those were, you're right, most of those were decisions that happened around the turn of the century. Um, Michigan was the first school east, uh, west of the Ivy League to really get really into big time football. Um, And so they had this huge institutional head start, right? Um, And uh, if we were redrawing these lines now, Would Oregon State or Indiana or, you know, certainly not Baylor, you know, be be in that same conversation? Probably not, but it's because you had a governor kind of push you in at some point or somebody advocated for you a long time ago. And if you are a high achieving school outside of that footprint, it is extremely difficult to move. Like ask Boise State. Boise State has done anything that anybody could have possibly asked them to do on the field and, and became a national brand. But because... One, they're in Boise. And two, they were literally a truck driving commuter college back in like the 1970s. There there is no meritocracy, right? There's no Horatio, I'll, I'll, you know, there's there's no way you can kind of join the Big 12 and play up that way unless things change. BYU won a freaking national championship in 1984, and it required, you know, a gigantic chasm within the sport before they had to be accepted. So for every Uh, UCF that kind of plays their way in a little bit or like an Oregon who bought their way in and then kind of played their way in. Um, There's a Rutgers who doesn't deserve to be in this conversation at all or just everybody else that moves in by inertia. Um, And and that's that's one of the issues. There's a little bit more flexibility in basketball where you could theoretically decide we're going to spend a lot of money. And if everything breaks right, we can be in a better league and and we can be like a Davidson or a, a Dayton or a George Mason for a little while. That doesn't really exist in football, uh, and it takes so much the
0: difference in in the sustained spending that you would have to do. Or
1: that's I mean that's part of it. Football just by its very nature is. Is this a kind of podcast where I can swear, or would we prefer not you, to do that? I prefer not to. You prefer not to. Okay, think- good, 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 to know. So <laughs> it, it just takes an enormous amount of money um, because yeah. you have 85, 85 scholarships, hundred players on your roster, uh, ten football coaches, a sixty million dollar stadium. Uh, And then you need to have a new like uh, athletic directors, personnel trainers, sports information directors. Like you can't do that on the cheap. So it takes tens of millions of dollars a year sustained to grow. Then you have to get lucky because for every time somebody wins a college football game, somebody loses. And a lot of this is luck and recruiting is generally dominate, generally dominated by the same schools that have been getting the best players since the forties. It's like, it's, it's hard to, to, to move up that way. It's a little bit easier in basketball, where realistically you need two guys who are, are who are really good um, and, and a good coach to kind of play to play your way into it. Um, one of the things that's important, and I, I write about this a lot though, is you know, as schools may want to be playing Division I college football for reasons that have nothing to do with anything that's on the field, and that they might just define success or achieve their institutional goals, even if the team sucks, um, which because of the way the the finances, the sport the way the school setup might work, you, you can do that. Um, that there's a reason why New Mexico state is still playing at this level, even though God bless them, they're, they're, they're awful and they've been awful <laughs> our entire lives and they're going to be awful for our, my, my children's lives. That's not the point for them. Um, it, it can be a little bit counterintuitive that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like it it really is that kind of like rush back to the big brands. You know, it's it, a, a big brand can be down for a while an upstart can be up for a while you can beat them on the field kind of in the short term, but over the long term, it's gonna kind of the laws of physics are gonna go back to USC being where it is and Memphis being where it is, or something yeah, like that. I, the yeah.
1: the comparisons to European soccer, I think, are pretty apt in a lot of ways. Right. So if you're a fan of an EPL team that's just hoping to, to crack the top 20 in the table, like you you never hope to win the league. Like that that basically never happens, and you are bothering to try to get a share of that revenue. And if you are coming in at a Man U or a Chelsea or something, and you have some gigantic oligarch bankrolling your team, it's a a different sport and your expectations and your goals are different. And you're right. You might, you know, maybe Watford or Nottingham forest or some other made up team could come in there and win, beat one of those teams on any given day, but you're right. Inertia is a powerful force and it's going to skew towards the biggest brands in football.
0: Oh yeah. Well, so another big thing is the is the NIL, the you know name, image, and likeness stuff. Um, what do you think? Uh, you know, we all we all know about kind of the big deals. You know, the Quinn Ewers and all these kind of high end deals. Yeah. Do you think what what do you think it's going to do all the way throughout the kind of the amateur landscape, the the smaller sports, the Division three, as well as the big the big numbers that we hear. Do you think it's you know something that's a real revenue source for people do you think it's going to affect where people go to school
1: well let me think of the best way to answer that because i i think really when we talk about the nil space i think there's really two different markets there's a nil market for top 300 ish college football players and top 50 ish men's basketball players predominantly in the southeast where there is a there is money being exchanged for services that bear no relationship to how marketable they are. And that's really just a way of being a bag man over the table. And that's fine. But like that's another way.
0: That's, another is a recruiting
1: tool. It's a, it is, it is explicitly a pay-for-play recruiting tool. Um, and that was not the spirit of when, when this was allowed, uh, they're still under the table transactions happening. Like that's always going to be a thing, but that's three, that's 350, 400 athletes of the thousands that participate in college sports um, I have been a believer even before this kind of you know started in, in July that literally every single college athlete, whether you are a starter or a bench player, whether you're at a big time D1 school or a division institution, all of them have a name image like this value greater than zero. It might not be a lot greater than zero, um, but it's, it's going to be something. And if, and if anybody wanted to, you know, make it a priority to really develop that and earn more money, they could, but then you have to treat it like a job because that that's what it is. You know, I, as a, as a publisher, I did, I don't know, 10 of these deals with athletes to help promote extra points. You know, I paid 150 bucks, 200 bucks to someone to help promote what I, what I was uh, publishing and, and, and driving subs that way. And I wasn't working with starting quarterbacks at Alabama. You know, I was working with uh you know, track athletes or women's basketball players or, or Mac football players or offensive linemen and people who are good at Twitter. And, and that's fine. What, what I can tell you is that uh, a lot of people are earning some money. And I don't want to sit here at my desk and be like, well, $750 isn't a big deal because I remember what it was like to be 20. And oh, you yeah. broke. You had no money. Right? I had no yeah. money. 750 bucks yeah. was almost three months rent in Columbus. I did oh, yeah. medical studies. I gave blood. I, you <laughs> know, I did clinical trials. I, I basically legally sold my body for like two grand because I had no money. So if someone wants to give me two thousand dollars to tweet something, like that's a big deal. And for me to sit here as a thirty-four year old with like a mortgage of kids and scoff at that, which I think some of my reporter colleagues do, is stupid. Like 50, $500 bucks isn't just a PS five. Like that, that is a lot of money, especially if you're not on a full scholarship, which most. College athletes are not um, most sports are not headcount sports. You only get, you typically only get a partial. So that's, that, that's, 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 that's one thing here. The other thing I think it's important to note is that if you listen to football coaches or uh, coaches of other uh, sports and asked about NIL, they're all going to whine incessantly. And they're all going to say, it's the most important thing in recruiting. And they're all going to say my school needs to invest more money in it. Because if you're a coach, you're paid, to win games. And so you are terrified of any tiny difference that you might have, even if it's just perceived with any other school. That's why everyone builds these locker rooms with fountains in them and laser tablets. You know, nobody gives a crap about those. We have academic research to back that up. Um, So some athletes will definitely pick where they go to school based on their earning potential, just like many undergraduates pick where to go study based on money, who's giving them the most scholarships, But here's the thing: you and I both know this. Not everybody does that. I don't know if you picked the the, the absolute cheapest school when you are applying for college. I didn't. Um, and and candidly, part of the like, re- you know, one of the sc- I, I one of the schools I was seriously considering is Case Western Reserve, which is a, a, a private school in Cleveland. And one of the reasons I didn't go there because again, I wasn't thinking about this decision as a 34 year old. I'm thinking about it as a 17 year old. I'm thinking the weather in Cleveland sucks. This campus is 66% dude, and I haven't seen a pretty girl in the two weeks that I've been here. I'm going to make a very superficial decision, and that's what college oh, yeah. kids do. Yeah. So NIL <laughs> is part of that. Location is part of that. Playing time is part of that. Relationship with the coach is part of that. All of these other factors. Um, I think it is easy to look at Texas A&M's recruiting class and assume that's the way it's going to be in every sport for every class, for every every athlete forever. but you know, if you right now, even right now, if you like Ohio state released a statement that said only about 24% of their athletes are doing any NIL deals at all, like any. And when I talk to mid and low major ADs, it's generally 10 or under. So this isn't the most important factor for every single athlete. Does Does that make sense? Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. And how, I guess how involved do the, do the schools get, or can the schools get, and doesn't it right now it's kind of like varies by state or something like that in terms of how much they can uh i don't know oversee the contracts or or be you know there's there's not a lot written out there as far as i guess like the association of you know the school with the deal itself or or how is that looking
1: so yeah that's 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 exactly right a lot of this varies by state different states have different laws some states explicitly say in their state law that the university cannot broker the deal because then that makes it explicitly paid for play. Some don't say anything. Some states explicitly ban certain industries like gambling or marijuana or pornography. Some states don't. And in fact, literally I've had compliance directors at some public schools in Florida say, we can't stop our athletes from doing a porno deal or a a deal with a CBD company as distasteful as you might find that, how much we, we beg them not to do it. We, for a free speech, and because of the way this laws written, we can't do it. Mm-hmm. In Utah, they definitely can stop you, and they will. Like, I've, I've, I've seen the, the paperwork. Um, the other thing that is different is capacity. So Ohio State uh, has an athletic department that's the size of a small Caribbean country. They have yeah. an indefinite number of staffers to throw at yeah. almost anything. Um, when I talk to, say, uh, I don't know, somebody at Kennesaw State, Or, you know, Southern Illinois, Carbondale or something. And I asked them about NIL. They're like, look, brother, we've got one full-time compliance person. We have two graduate assistants. We have one full-time sports information director and two graduate assistants. Even if the law says we can help, we don't have who's going to do it. Like everyone here is already driving the bus and doing laundry anyway. Um, we don't have time to or or resources to to pay someone 55 grand to shake down deals worth 600 bucks for our athletes all we can do is say here's what you got to do to stay compliant with the NCAA. please don't embarrass me if you have any questions call open doors or, or call influencer right yeah and so there's i think right now actually i don't think i know there's an enormous gap between not just what schools feel like they can do to be compliant some schools don't care about being compliant and what schools actually can do, like, and so, sometimes those schools will say, "Matt, will you come talk to our athletes and explain how this stuff works?" Because they don't have the money for something else. And like, great, um, that's just kind of the, the world we are. That's
0: awesome. And so, what did what did Texas A and M do? What as it relates to, I guess well, NIL, or you know, I, I've seen a couple headlines, but what what
1: exactly? I What's do not happened? know the exact financial instrument. Allegedly. Boosters of Texas A&M helped set up LLCs uh, and created uh, guaranteed NIL opportunities for some of their incoming recruits in the five to six figures. Um, It would not be shocking given college football history if anybody recruits a class that's uh, like a standard deviation better than they normally would. Almost always there's a cash or gift inducement to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been that way since 1905. So whether this stuff happened above board, whether there was the, the Dodge Charger man who's given cars out a below board, you know, we can't say for certain. And like me speaking personally, I don't care. Like if, if you call me up right now, it's like, I have proof that Texas A&M cheated. It'd be like, all right, I don't, I don't, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> go, go, po- go post that on Bama online. I'm not the NCAA police. Yeah, I'm not going to yeah. be angry that some kids secured the bag because they're going to football. Um, yeah. Jimbo Fisher is vehemently denying this which I think is kind of funny coaches always get very defensive about this kind of thing. And it's possible. He does. He has possible deniability. I'm not saying that he broke any NCAA rules or anybody from Texas A&M staff did. I am, all I am saying is, uh, this is a school that has a lot of rich boosters. They have signed the greatest recruiting class on paper in college football history. They have been perennially eight and four in my lifetime. Um, you don't need to be Wikipedia Brown to kind of connect the dots to figure out what might have happened here. I don't think it was just because Jimbo's a great football coach. They
0: they got their foot on the gas.
1: Yeah, I, I, the, the 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 parlance we like to use is um, they are recruiting to win. They are playing for <laughs> recruiting and friends. Yeah. You can yeah. interpret that interpret inter- interpret that statement any way you like.
0: Yeah. Well, I read a book. I might. I don't know if I have it. Uh. I think it's this necessary roughness. Have you read this book?
1: Uh, no, My but I, I am, I am, I am aware of it. Yeah, yeah. this is this has been going on for forever.
0: Oh yeah, there, there's a, a thing in there where um, I think it was TCU. They had a, a, th- a running back, and he just went on the private plane of the booster, and they took a legal pad and they just wrote out a contract. You get twenty thousand a year to come here, sign here. And they had the contract. and people found it later. You know, they they just wrote it out explicitly, twenty thousand a year. Yeah.
1: So I mean, that would be a crappy bag, man. You're not supposed to write that stuff down. We have exactly bags. use Bitcoin or a very popular thing in the South would be casino chips, where you might you might take a recruit out to dinner and maybe he decides to go to the Bloxy casino and there's a bag with a bunch of chips and he cashes them out. And well, look, I, uncle Sam NCAA, I don't have to tell you, it's legal for this young man to be gambling. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's ways to do this. I would not write anything down and sign my name personally, but I don't I know. Have that, but that just language. shows
0: how, yeah, how out there
1: they were. Oh know? yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, and the, and the thing, like when I was in school, you'd always hear about like, you know, a booster has the, you know, basketball player come mow the lawn or, Come watch somebody mow the lawn, and they get you know fifteen hundred dollars cash or two thousand dollars cash for doing that. You know, and it's you know it's like well they were just doing a job. It's like well was that job open to everybody or just you know the point guard for your you know Final Four team?
1: Yeah, yeah, and and this is the convert. Yeah, this is this is how things used to go before athletic scholarships were legalized nationwide. Is then you you would just do show jobs because. Uh, and it was easier for Big Ten schools to do this because they were generally in bigger cities. It was the southern schools that were generally more rural areas that were pitching athletic scholarships. Um, Yale in like 1904, 1905, they were doing NIL deals. They would they would make a star football player, the uh, on-campus salesman for like cigarettes and, and they wow. give, them a, you know, give them a kickback uh, for, for some of the money where they they let them sell scorecards or let them sell tickets. Um I am not somebody, I, th- I feel like I know the history of the sport well enough to be clear eyed, think like, I, I just don't care about any of this. I know some people will get very indignant about how this is a, a, a flagrant violation of the sacred ideals of amateurism. Like, nah, all that stuff sucks. Um, I, I, I am not going to accuse anybody of cheating, but I would hope that if athletes are coming to my alma mater, I hope they are securing the bag in one way or another because their skills are valuable. And in this country, people should be paid for their labor.
0: Oh yeah, and and it's like you said, you know, you were you know, struggling with money in college and there's a lot of athletes that are on full scholarship or 90% scholarship especially in other sports like, you know, track and stuff like that. They don't have a lot of money. You know, they're they're just scraping by and they're doing a lot for the school and Yeah, um, everybody else is making money. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and it's it's kind of, you know, it's like the old uh, Olympics, you know, it, it, Olympics has all these amateur ideals and everybody thought it's going to be game over once, you know, Steve Prefontaine doesn't have to live in a trailer. And then you realize like, Oh, it's fine. And it's even better. And the Olympics, no one cares that there's professionals in the Olympics.
1: Yep. That makes that's, the Olympics better. It's a, yeah. That, that, that That's my opinion here too. I know uh, there's a generational divide about some of these things in college athletics. I talked to an AD that's been doing this for 30 years they freak out a little bit more than somebody who's maybe closer to my age, uh, and just recognizes, like this has always evolved." We used to think that athletic scholarships would were would, would, would ruin amateurism and break everything, and now we look at that as a, an opportunity for, in, for income advancement and for helping with class mobility, and as like a beautiful part of college. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm, I'm very bullish about, honest to God, the educational component of NIL. I know that not everybody feels that same way, but I suspect we'll look back on this in a decade, and 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 this enterprise is still functioning, and people still care.
0: Oh yeah, what do you mean by the e- educational opportunity of the?
1: So I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Let's say you are a. Wh- where, where did you go to school? Memphis. University Memphis. Okay. Memphis. Yeah. So let's say let's say you are a shooting guard at the University of Memphis. Um, and uh, Memphis will tell the NCAA that's a 20-hour week responsibility, but you and I and Penny Hardaway know that it's a lot more than that. Um, and even when it's you're not in the season, you you can't go study. You can't just be like, "All right, Penny, I got it. I got it, I'm doing a study abroad in, in Italy. Like, I'll, I'll see you next semester, right?" Like, you, you can't do that as an athlete. You often can't even work at all. So your world automatically then on campus shrinks. Uh, it may be difficult for you to to be in a fraternity or any other kind of like or formalized you know, campus uh, group, your world is basketball, class, and the athletics building. And because of that, you're going to have some doors that are going to be close to you because you can't network uh, and, 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 uh, and see the world outside of basketball the same way that maybe some of your peers do. But with NIL, now you have an opportunity to build some of those relationships, and the school can't tell you no. The sports information director can't hide you or anything. So if you want to do a deal with, say, a local financial advisor to help promote that industry and then have a chance to learn about business development, to learn about finance or real estate or other industries where you might work when you're done playing basketball, through NIL, now your professional circle has grown. Your ability to learn entrepreneurial skills has grown. And that would be my advice to everybody here because the $500,000 crypto or autograph or you know baloney deals are going to get the big headlines. But the thing is here at, at Memphis, babe, listen, you know, maybe one guy on this roster is going to have a professional basketball career the last more than four years. And maybe four of you on this 85-man football roster are going to be playing football again in four years. So everybody else, you gotta, you got to get people. So when you come back to Memphis when you're 25 or when you go back to Oxford or Pensacola or, uh, you know, uh, Houston or wherever it is that you're from – that you have a network of professionals and network of people to help build you up for whatever's next. And I, I honest to God, believe done correctly, NIL can help facilitate and, and build that for people that don't have that social capital.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I haven't heard anybody explain it that way, but I think you're totally right. It's that, that real world, you're, you're in a real world business deal uh, that you definitely would not have had the opportunity to do before. Cause you are, you know, kind of nonstop the whole time you're there.
1: Yeah, that's right. So it's cool because then you not only get to learn about a new industry, but you are also now an entrepreneur of Matt Brown LLC, right? Where I'm managing Matt Brown's Instagram and Twitter, and I'm thinking about what my brand actually means. And now I got to work in business development because I got to hop on open doors and pitch myself to brands. I got to figure out how to file my W nines. Like that's all real world stuff, and uh, that's the kind of in a perfect world. It's what you go to college to learn. So like what as I see those gears turning for some people, especially that people that didn't hang out with business owners or that don't have daddy's cult, you know, country club to go back to when they're done, I get excited about that. Cuz this is what we're supposed to be this is, this is part of the point of college sports, I think. Oh yeah,
0: that's awesome. Well, I think that's that's about all I've got. Is there something you want to add or any is there any component of uh, college sports that's exciting you right now or that you're interested in? digging into that you want to discuss or?
1: Yeah, this, this, this world is something I'm fascinated by. Um, I'm fascinated by how schools earn money and then decide where to use that money, whether that's in athletics or somewhere else. Um, You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll give you an example, right? So a big part of my newsletter covers, uh, how schools sell tickets, which at Ohio State is just you open the door and you don't you don't ever have to do any outbound sales. At Memphis, you might have to do a little bit. And if you're at the University of New Orleans or if you're at Southern Miss or you know Central Arkansas, then you absolutely do have to get up there and shill tickets. Right? How these schools get money from their uh, multimedia rights, their sponsorship group. It's like not their not their Tier One ESPN deal, but selling billboards and selling uh, ads in the program and selling the signage on the basketball court. And how they they utilize that money and uh how they're how they're how they're kind of building around the future whether that's nil or uh different kind of capital projects um i'm also building a database of a lot of this information so uh in a a perfect world right and you can see a lot of these documents on extra points nb right now we want it so you can look at every university's athletic budget their coaches for their contracts so their football men's and women's basketball coaches the women's basketball coach salaries aren't public, aren't published right now because no one's actually bothered to look them all up. The last thing I'm doing is trying to do that same thing for esports, which is something that more and more universities, especially smaller schools, are are really investing in. Because if you are a smaller school, right, if you're Mississippi College or I don't know, like uh, like, it was like uh, North Alabama or something. If you're North Alabama, you can't beat Alabama in anything that Alabama wants to do. Wants to beat you at in any in any sport. Yeah. Um, but for four hundred thousand dollars, you can get a bunch of computers and hire an esports coach. And if you uh, you know are, are smart about this, you can kick Alabama's butt in Call of Duty or 2K or Fortnite or any number of things. And that's happening right now. Like Alabama will play some of these like tiny Bible colleges in Georgia or these these liberal arts schools in the Northeast and get the tar kicked out of them. And then these schools are using that to boost their mail enrollment, which is a hard thing to do. So I'm trying to get some more money, getting more documents to show the money behind that and a, a pathway for schools to go down that same road. So those are those are some of the big stories that I'm working on there. And you can find the financial disclosures for free on extrapointsmb.com.
0: That's awesome. Well, this was super enlightening and uh, you're definitely welcome back anytime. I mean, This is stuff that that I'm interested in and I'm sure the audience as well, because it's that the the whole money in sports and um, you know you you focus on the university aspect of it, but it's it's just tremendous because it it drives so much and people don't they tend not to look behind the curtain at all.
1: Yeah, this is, this is how the sausage gets made. Sometimes it's boring, but sometimes it, well, I think once you understand it a little bit more, you can see how it's exciting and interesting and explains why some programs are great and some programs that you would look at and say you've got great geography and what's the problem? Why they suck? Or uh, why, why they struggle sometimes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You can find that at extra points and B. You can get two of those newsletters are free, and it pub- But it does publish every uh, every weekday. Uh, you can also uh, become a paying subscriber and get access to everything um, on that website.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt. This this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's my pleasure. Anytime.
0: Awesome.